Tonight we're going to be in Judges 11. It's in the Old Testament. And what we saw the last time we covered Judges, Judges 10, we saw the judges, and these are the judges, these are the leaders, the uh, interim uh, leaders before the kings come, all right? Uh, after Moses and Joshua and before the kings. So we see this period of time in Israel's history. In chapter 10, we saw the judges Tola and Yair, or Jair, uh, and the interim period where the children of Israel, and we took a part where they really displayed biblical repentance. Oftentimes, they just didn't want the judgment, they didn't want the suffering, so they cried out to the Lord. But in Judges 10, we really see step by step how the children of Israel repented and the Lord relented from their suffering and gave them somebody to deliver them. And that opens the door for Judges 11 tonight, uh, which is, we're going to be introduced to the judge Jephthah. So verse 1. It says, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begot Jephthah. And what we see when we go into this period of the judges, and even any man or woman in the scripture, is they had their strengths and weaknesses. Uh, certainly being the son of a harlot, which was uh, Bible speak for a prostitute, certainly would be a problem with credibility among his own countrymen. We're going to see that. Um, the poor guy didn't have a choice of how he was born, <laughs> just how he came into the world, and he has a rough start in life. But what I really like is that the Bible shows us over and over that God uses the least perfect people in the Scripture. And those that came across like they were so perfect, like the religious leaders in Jesus' day, he had the biggest problem with them. He chose rather to hang around and pick fishermen and tax collectors and, you know, uh, the rejects of society than the almighty, holy-looking religious leaders. Uh, so I like this. So there's hope for us regular folk. There's hope for us imperfect people. Just right in the first uh, verse of the Bible, and we see it all, or the book of Judges, and we see it all through the Scripture. Verse 2. So Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob, and worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. What I find amazing in the Bible is how it addresses social issues. You know, people who say, well, the Bible's outdated, it's outmoded. Well, apparently they haven't read the scripture. You read the whole Bible and tell me that the Bible's outdated. The social issue is right here. Jephthah's not accepted by his own, so he finds a bunch of bad characters to hang out with, and he turns to a life of crime in a sense. We don't know exactly what these worthless men did with Jephthah, uh, but they were, you know, the Bible's pretty descriptive there. And how many of us at some point in our life hung out with worthless men or women, right? Or we were some ourselves. <laughs> but God chose to call us anyway. And we also know that everyone makes choices. And Jephthah made these choices to hang out with these people. Verse 4. Now it came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was. When the people of Ammon made war against Israel, that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress or trouble? 
now all of a sudden you need me? You know, what's the reason? Why do you want to pick me now after you guys drove me out? Um, maybe they didn't want to get their hands dirty. Maybe they figured Jephthah was expendable. Let him do the dirty work, right? So many reasons we could look at. But on an emotional level, and I like to not just gloss over the scripture, I really like to, I don't want to be guilty of poor hermeneutics and eisegesis, but what I like to do is look into and see these characters and see what they must have dealt with. This was probably painful to him. You know, his brothers drove him out, you know, away from his family, hangs out with these people, you know, kind of like a little marauding gang. And now they want it, now they ha they're in trouble, so they want, hey, Jephthah, hey, come over here. Why don't, you, why don't you help us out here? Probably hurtful, probably painful. Probably we've all been there at some point in time. But you also get the impression that the elders were complicit with Jephthah's family in driving him out because he said you. So if you, first you have his brothers driving him out, and then he's blaming the elders for what happened. So they're either complicit or they allowed this to happen. So um, most likely everybody kind of banded against Jephthah and kicked him out. So now they want him back. Verse, verse 8. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people, made him head and commander over them, and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Now, I'm not so convinced that the leaders had good motives still. Um, if I look at this, it's a win-win situation for the leaders. Number one, if Jephthah dies fighting, he was a convenient proxy to blame or surrogate. Well, you know, Jephthah, so they could kind of, you know, put a, he was a proxy for them, you see. Uh, he was the problem. Or at the very least, if he died fighting, maybe he would take out a lot of the Ammonites, the, the enemies of Israel, take a lot of them out by attrition, so the, the elders make out. If Jephthah wins, then the leaders were at least rid of the Ammonites, and you know maybe it'd be better to have somebody like Jephthah rule over them than these wicked Ammonites. So it's a win-win for the leadership. In verse 11, we also see it looks as though Jephthah wanted to make sure that the Lord was part of this new endeavor. He wanted to say all these words before the Lord at Mizpah. Lord, you know, this is what's going on, and I want to bring it before you. And what we can see here is that it's good practice to involve the Lord in all of our endeavors. What's the issue in your life? Is it finances? Is it finding a job? Is it an issue with your kids? Is it an issue in your marriage? Whatever it is, we should always go to Mizpah and go to the Lord and say, Lord, this is my issue. This is what I want to do, but I really want your blessing. So it's good practice. Verse 12. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me, that you have come to fight against me in my land? So Jephthah starts by trying to make peace with the Ammonites instead of just attacking. This kind of lends to his character. Now, men and women of the Bible did a lot of good and a lot of bad, as we see as we go through the Bible. But in this particular instance, we see he's starting out good. Um, you know, any military leader knows, general knows, even today you would hope that you count the cost before you send people into battle. Um, you know there's going to be bloodshed. You know there's going to be moms who, you know, they're going to lose their sons in battle. Or, um, you know, if it doesn't go well and the enemy comes, they'll be even more ornery to come back and take revenge on you. So 
Uh, you see Jephthah is trying to at least try to, try to st- send some peace, maybe work things out with the Ammonites, maybe we don't have to go to war. Verse 13. And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok, and to the Jordan. Now therefore restore those lands peaceably. So here's the complaint of the king of Ammon. Listen, you guys years ago took my land, which he probably wasn't even born back then. He definitely wasn't. And look, here's the deal. If you will replace that land, um, you know, we'll have peace. And, and that's pretty much the only way. So what he's doing, he's going back all the way to the time of Moses. You guys took our land. Um, and it, you can kind of see in Israel, this is a, a constant issue, even today. Palestinians, you, you know, if you know your history with the Transjordan, after England gave uh, land back to, you know, uh, Middle Eastern peoples. The, the argument today, even today, about Israel and the people surrounding them, uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ancient feud. But again, if you know your history, you know the truth. Verse 14. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh, and they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab, came to the east side of the land of Moab, and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. As I turn the page, don't worry, I'm going to make some sense out of all this. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land into our place. They were trying to get into the promised land. And they were, they were kind of going, you know, they left the exodus of Egypt. They're going around. They keep trying to get through the land into the promised land. But they were being polite and saying, can we go through your nation before we get into the promised land? And successive nation after nation turns them down. And I'm going to make some sense of it. Verse 20, but Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and camped at Jahaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all the people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. Thus Israel regained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people. Should you then possess it? Will you not possess whatever Chemosh your God gives to you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. And now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? Well, Israel, this is a very long message for this messenger. to Hopefully he wrote it down and didn't do it by memory. While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages, in Aroer and its villages, and in all the cities along the banks of the Arnon for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? Therefore, I have not sinned against you in closing, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. So what Jephthah's response is brilliant and it's historically accurate and it's factual. Four points that he makes. The first point, Jephthah recounts where the children of Israel were trying to get into the promised land but refused 
passage by each successive nation, which I talked about. This is covered in Numbers 20 and Numbers 21. So basically what you have is, if you have, you know, I'm sure you've seen a map of Israel. It's this little country, right, in the middle of the Middle East. And what happens is um, that land, you had uh, Edom was down here, and then you had uh, Moab and Ammon, which the Amorites were part of, and then Gilead. And here's the Jordan, and they just were trying to get across the Jordan into the Promised Land, but each successive nation told them, you can't pass through our land, you can't pass through our land. So they kept going further north, and then eventually they were attacked. The Lord gave them victory. Uh, They were able to reclaim that land, and then they were able to get into the Promised Land. So that's what happened. The second point, the Amorites drew first blood against Israel, and God gave Israel the victory. Uh, That's in verse 23. And in verse 24, it's interesting. He said, would you ever give back land that Chemosh, your God, has given you? Now, we know that Chemosh doesn't exist. It's a false god. But he's trying to use logic with these people, saying, this is the practice back then. You have to know a little bit of the culture. In those days, if you won a victory, you would attribute it to your god. Your god could not exist. It could be a little idol statue that you had on your table. But if you were able to be victorious and you happened to get the better of your enemy, you would attribute it to your little idol. So we know that there's only one God, and that's the Lord God, and he's one God. Uh, But he was saying, our God gave us this stuff, you know. When you guys, when you're conquest, do you ever say, Chemosh, we don't want the land? So I'm not going to do that either. God gave it to me, right? The third point that he makes, it's been over 300 years since this, this happened. Now, why are you making this claim now? Almost as if the statute of limitations ran out, right? But he was saying to them, basically, it wasn't our generation that did this. They weren't even born yet. And it wasn't your generation that that was wrong, because they weren't even born yet. So this is an age-old family feud that goes back 300 years. And the fourth point, isn't there a little hypocrisy here, bro? Um, Numbers 21, 29 says that the Amorites had stolen Moabite land. So the Amorites, that the land that Israel stole from them or conquered, wasn't even their land to begin with because they took it from somebody else. So aren't you guys being a little hypocritical? Now just to understand, there's a little confusion between the Amorites and the Ammonites. Most of you probably say, well, who cares? But the bottom line is this. You had your country of Ammon, and the Amorites were more like mountain people. So they were coming almost like a people or a nation within a nation. All right? So you see a little back and forth when you read the Old Testament between the Amorites and the Ammonites. Okay, verse 28. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. (laughs) There's a good lesson here. Sometimes no matter how correct you are, or no matter how well-spoken you are, no matter how much you make sense, and it could be godly counsel, you're still going to run into illogical and difficult people. And we've all been there. A lot of smiles, right? That's hitting home. And they will make war with you, and you'll have to face them, and oftentimes they don't want any terms of peace. This is what we deal with in life. (laughs) The Bible says, that's why the Bible says, if it's at all possible to be at peace with all men. Because sometimes it's not always possible. So Jephthah tried, 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 and he didn't get anywhere, but he he really made a valiant effort here. So they're going to go to war. Verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced towards the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands. Remember, he's already been filled by the Spirit. The the Spirit of the Lord already came upon him. And he's doing, I guess, it was a double indemnity or something, where now he's going to make a vow on top of it. This is where it gets weird. 
Then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon in victory shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it as a burnt offering. This is the most disputed, talked about, curious, debated portions of scripture and, and I'll get into that. So, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah to give him victory. It's a done deal. Spirit of the Lord comes, and I believe that they knew when they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. It was something that it appeared that it would come and go in the Old Testament, whereas in the New Testament, or in our day, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So this guy's empowered by the Spirit of God. You can do anything when you're empowered by the Spirit of God. And he makes this foolish vow, and it ends up his daughter ends up coming out of the house, and we're going to deal with that problem. It goes to show you that the most anointed people can still do some stupid things. <laughs> I can be so in the spirit when I'm in the pulpit and then come down from the pulpit and have a conversation with somebody and say something dumb. Right, Nancy? <laughs> She's laughing. It's just the slip of the tongue or something stupid and I'm like, oh, I should just go back in the pulpit and preach and not talk to anybody. So believe me, I've seen some really anointed people and they're really on fire, and when they're up there, you know the Lord is moving through them. And then uh, they come down from the pulpit, and it's just, what? You know? So <laughs> Jephthah was no different. You would ask yourself, what the heck was Jephthah thinking? <laughs> you know? Anything could come out of the house. His wife could come out, his kid could come out, the neighbor's kid could come out. So I don't know what was going through his head. He already had the victory. It was almost as if he was trying to hedge his bet. Um, trying to get a little bit more just to be doubly sure uh, and gain extra favor with the Lord. Again, we've done really stupid things as God's people and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So, the question is, have we also promises here? Have we made promises to God? And are some of those promises to God based on insecurity? Are we insecure with our relationship with God? And we, you know, Lord... If you just help me with this current situation, then I I swear I'll never do it again, or I'll become a monk, or, you know, do we do that as God's people? We promise God things that he's probably like, don't even go there, but we just, it just comes out, right? Um, Foolish promises to God, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 6 is a great portion of scripture for that. It says, it says not to make foolish vows, Don't, don't be rash with your mouth. And certainly it's better not to promise God something than to promise him and not to be able to fulfill that promise. So God's like, listen, I prefer you don't even promise me anything if you're going to do that and then break your word. So Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 6 is really good when it comes to vows. God didn't want this from Jephthah. He had already empowered him with his spirit, which was an honor. Okay. Verse 32. So Jephthah advanced towards the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from Aurora as far as Minith, 20 cities, and to Abel, Keramim, with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. So here's the victory. Now, if you go back to verse 1 and you get to here, there's a lot in between. Um, again, this guy was kicked out. He was the son of the harlot. It didn't look good for his future. But God had plans for him. Uh, Reminds me of David running from King Saul. David was already anointed. God's already said, you're going to be the king. You are the king. You just need to, you know, take that position. And David spent so many years running from the king who had lost God's favor because he he did some wicked things. He was not into pleasing God. He was into pleasing himself. And David was running, 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 running. God said, David, it's yours. And David behaved as if it was never going to happen. 
But it's good because we can see our lives where we've been promised something and it doesn't look like it's going to happen and we do the same thing. Instead of having victory, we talked about victory, right, in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has the word overcome. And in the Greek, the word actually is to be a conqueror of something, you know, um, in a good way. To be a conqueror and an overcomer. Uh, seven times in all the different churches, Jesus says to him who overcomes, to him who conquers. But a lot of Christians live in defeat. We don't live as if we're overcomers or conquerors. And you know what? God's people in the Bible were no different, right? 34. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Make it worse. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot go back on it. All right. Verse 36. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. Now, you know, we, we look at Jephthah, and, and he got, guy's got a lot of good qualities. He, he made a, a foolish vow that, that certainly put him in a predicament. But, you know, I think the focus needs to shift on the obedience of his daughter. This was an, a remarkable young lady. <laughs> she could have said, oh, I'm going to go and takes off and never comes back, right? Probably a lot of people would have done that. <laughs> That's your problem, Pop. I'm out of here, you know, beat feet. But the focus, you know, you got to look at the character of this young lady, um, The Bible is replete with men and women, a lot of them, who have very little notoriety. We don't know her name. We don't hear about her again, right? Um, And there's a lot of those in the scriptures. You know, if you haven't read the whole Bible, you'll miss these people. They're good people. They're obedient. And they're concerned more about the greater good than they are about themselves. And you know what? In our society, man, that is so foreign. And probably many people, especially non-believers, would read this and say, what a fool she was. Because... Because you don't have that commitment today. It's what can I get? What can I get out of society? What can I get out of my parents? What can I get out of the government? What can I get out of my church? You know, what can I get? What's in it for me? Most people don't say, like in JFK's inauguration address, ask not what you can do, uh, what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And my understanding historically was he got a lot of heat from his own political party for saying that. That wasn't part of the script. But that was beautiful. I mean, that was an awesome... Uh, thing that he said. Uh, and, and again, this girl certainly exemplifies that. Verse 39. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man, remained a virgin, and became a, it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Now, so what actually happened here? <laughs> Wait, let me finish. Let me finish. I'm going to get there, Jim. You know, we're getting there. Um, Did he perform human sacrifice on his own child? Remember Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham lifted the knife and was going to take his son's life and the angels stopped him, uh, the Lord had stopped him and said, hey, we're not going to do that here. Leviticus 18 and 20, Deuteronomy 12, all condemn human sacrifice. The pagans did that stuff. 
the pagan, the pagans sacrificed their children. Certainly God would not have that of his own people. Um, again, this is very contested. There's a lot of commentaries on this. Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, believes that this probably did happen. He, he took his daughter's life. Warren Wiersbe doesn't think so. As much as I love Chuck, I agree with Warren Wiersbe. I don't think he did it. And, and let, me, let me go through the steps. Number one, it was forbidden in the law. I mean, it was one of the most heinous, worst crimes you could commit, human sacrifice. Furthermore, you know, taking the life of your own kid. If Jephthah did it, would he be in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11? Remember, the Bible is inspired by God. If he did this, would the writer of Hebrews commend him for his, his great works of faith? I don't think so. Two, a priest would have had to perform the sacrifice, otherwise it wouldn't be valid. And even if he found a corrupt priest who was willing to do that, the law stated that only the firstborn male animal, and not even a human, animal had to be that sacrifice. It wasn't a female. Number three, a good priest would have informed Jephthah, maybe if he thought, I have to do this, that uh, according to Leviticus 27, 1 through 8, if you pay a certain amount of shekels, you could redeem that, that person. It's like a buyback, redemption type of thing. He would say, whoa, you know, let's take a deep breath here. You know, let's talk about this. Put the knife down. Um, four, step away from the knife. Four, because of Jephthah's notoriety, probably it would have been very hard for him to carry this out without nobody knowing about it. And somebody surely would have tried to stop him. If you look at 1 Samuel 14, 24 through 26, King Saul had a fit of madness, which was not uncommon for him. And he tried to kill his sons and he was stopped. The people stopped him from doing this. Uh, number five, there was a situation, this situation or the bewailing of the virginity became a custom in Israel. I find it hard to believe that the nation would have celebrated sacrificing of your daughter with like a, 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 a yearly calendar holiday. Uh, and if they did do that, we certainly would have heard from that later on in Scripture. Okay, so uh, these are a lot of reasons. And the sixth reason, Daryl would appreciate this, the Hebrew word in, in um, 1131 uh, for and, it says, surely, he says, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. The word and in Hebrew is the, uh, is the Hebrew letter wal, which is usually translated and, but in some instances it's translated or, which completely changes the meaning of that passage. It's, it's a small nuance, but it does change the, the, uh, the, the meaning. And the way it can be translated from there is, uh, when he returns in peace from the people of Ammon, he shall surely, th this 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 person that comes out will surely be the Lord's or I will offer it or something else up as a burnt offering. So if you look at all the reasons to this passage, I don't believe because when I read this, I've read the whole Bible a few times over. This was, you know, it doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. I, I don't see that God would, would, would have something like this and then, and then go furthermore and have the New Testament writer say, hey, what a great guy he is. He's in the hall of faith. I just don't, I don't buy it. I could be wrong, but I don't think that he actually killed her. So, probably the compromise was, was where the daughter symbolically was given to the Lord in the form of not being able to marry. In other words, a perpetual virginity. So, from, the day, from that day to the day she died, she was to remain single, and he dedicated her to the Lord, and the sacrifice was that she couldn't have a family, and she couldn't carry on his bloodline, which was very important in those days. Uh, 
she wouldn't carry the name as a female. However, she couldn't even carry his bloodline because she was his only daughter. So it was a sacrifice that he had to make, and it was also poor girl. He put it on her, sacrifice that she also had to make, but she didn't have to give up her life. Now, the lesson on this whole thing, to take all the, let all the smoke settle, and, and what is the lesson in this? I believe it's this, that God loves us. That we don't have to buy God's affection. That's what I believe this is all about. That we don't have to bargain for God's affection. But even as Christians, we still do it, don't we? Don't we? God has already sealed us with his Holy Spirit. Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hand if you're mine. These are the promises to the overcomers. This, this is what you have waiting for you at the end, the kingdom of heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb. But we still do things, and almost in our minds, we bargain for God's affection. Because I don't know what it is. Some of us are so high on ourselves that we think we're so great, and other, others of us think so little of ourselves that we don't think that God could possibly love us. And with our behavior and the things that we do, that he could continue to love us. But he does. It's just the way it is. And I believe that the lesson here, especially in light of this, this promise, is, you know, these guys are warriors and, and they're, they're mighty men and they fought these wars. But you know what? Inside, some of them were very insecure. And I believe that even as, as God's people, from Jephthah all the way to us, we have to believe and we have to meditate that God loves us. And that we have to meditate and believe that we have worth, that God looks at us, and when he looks down at each one of us individually, he says, you have worth, you have worth, you have worth, you have worth. And I think sometimes we don't realize it. I don't think Jephthah realized it. And Jephthah, again, even filled with the Spirit of God, he said, yeah, I know that, but let me do this. Let me give God something else because it's not enough. So let's meditate on that, and let's pray. Father in heaven,